Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. From WYPR here in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore. Welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves the debate from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on the show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas, making positive changes in other cities, and we ask, could it work here? Is it already working here? And if not, why not? Now, if you commuted to work this morning, odds are you drove your car. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 86% of U.S. workers commute to work every day by automobile. So, what happens to the city when and if Baltimore succeeds in its goal of population growth? The city simply does not have the infrastructure to support any more cars. Transportation, or lack thereof, also has traditionally been a way of segregating communities, creating a dangerous cycle of poverty that keeps marginalized populations from accessing jobs, health care, and healthy foods. But with exciting new innovations, driverless cars, automated buses, zip cars, and transportation apps, possibilities are opening up for new accessible transit. On this show, we'll ask, what can we do to ensure public transit systems reach all people, regardless of socioeconomic status? We'll learn from the successes of Columbus, Ohio, a city that is embracing a partnership between the private and the public sectors to create new models of transportation. Turning to Baltimore, we'll debate the effectiveness of the city's bus system. We'll also confront our own reliance on cars and explore how embracing cheaper, healthier alternatives like biking can have a ripple-down effect on our city's disenfranchised. My first guest today is Rosabeth M. Cantor, a professor at Harvard Business School and the author of Move, Putting America's Infrastructure Back into the Lead. Professor Cantor, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to do it. So when we, when we think of ways we've structured our cities, we really structure them around the automobile. And I know a lot of that is uh, because of a lot of the lobbying and support of the automobile industry. But what kind of problems uh, has that caused structuring our society and the way we move and, and maneuver around the automobile? Well, some of it had to do with cities and suburbs and the growth after World War II of the suburbs. And that meant many people commuting in to jobs that were in the center city, but the center city got hollowed out. And so it left only people working in offices, and they were often nine to five places, and then everyone disappeared. And the center city, the inner city, became became places of crime, undesirable, but it was that split between residences and offices that did it, and the car made that possible, commuting by car. And even public transportation systems, to the extent they existed, were geared toward people going into the city in the morning and leaving the city at night. And so you, whether it's, whether it's the share economy, whether it's uh, rethinking public transportation, you believe there is a real social justice aspect to this entire conversation. I think this is all about social justice. I mean, mobility is opportunity. If you have mobility, if you have physical mobility, you can have social mobility because you can escape any place. You can find the places with jobs. You can get to an education that may be better than what's in your neighborhood. But if you're stuck and you can't get anywhere and the jobs don't come to you, and you might not even afford a bicycle, that's another inner-city problem, then you're left behind. 
And social justice is not only ethical because we want more people to be able to participate in the economy. It makes good sense for everybody because we all pay the costs of crime-ridden cities. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you take a look at a city like a city like Baltimore, and uh, you know it takes the the average commute one way for a citizen traveling from East or West Baltimore, uh, which are also some of our most more underserved communities in the city. The average commute is ninety minutes in order for them to uh, get to where they need to get to in order to work. So, well, and if you if you think about that, the ninety minutes. It probably involves lots of changes of buses, getting from buses on to some other form of transportation, um, some kind of light rail. Um, So the poor, the underserved areas, also when they do have public transportation, it's often not direct. It's not serving them in particular. And yet the irony is that any place that has really good public transportation connections becomes an economic hub. It attracts retail, it attracts banks, it attracts many kinds of businesses, and so it attracts jobs. And so it would be a good proposition all around. And then think about that 90 minutes for a single mother who's trying to work, doesn't want to be on welfare, but can't easily get kids to daycare and get to a job in a reliable and convenient way. And the subtitle of your book is uh, is Putting America's Infrastructure Back in the lead. So that implies that America has fallen behind when it comes to infrastructure. Do you have any examples of countries or even cities uh, that are moving ahead of us and why? Oh, yeah. Well, many are moving ahead of us. I mean, we were very, very good after World War II. But again, we fell in love with the automobile. We stopped investing in rail of any kind. Public transportation was an afterthought. And meanwhile, some of the countries that lost World War II started rebuilding, and they leaped ahead. Japan has high-speed rail, really high-speed rail. I mean, they have bullet trains that go 200 miles an hour between cities. You can get to jobs, and they are late, maybe on average 32 seconds. It's amazing. (laughs) Europe is full of trains. Europe is also full of bicycles. So we don't use the bicycle as much in the United States as we could. It would be healthy to use bicycles, particularly short distances. And then China, of course, has really leaped ahead. The Chinese subway system is a marvel and also quickly connects cities and jobs and areas of cities. We haven't invested the way those places have invested. And and so finally, some people will say, well... The you know when we're thinking about transportation reform, when we're thinking about highway reforms, when we're thinking about infrastructure, that's only things that governments can do. Only government can really change a grid. Only government can change the way we we move and uh, and we maneuver. Even though it seems like you would actually disagree. So, what advice would you give to our listeners, uh, everyday people, about how we as individuals can help transform a city's transportation and transit system? Oh, what a great question, because there are many ways of doing it. Certainly, government plays the usual. You can't do it without government. But many transportation systems were started by private businesses. So there are business opportunities here, um, business opportunities 
Uber and Lyft, they're private businesses, business opportunities to have shared vans that could be like a kind of bus. A lot of public transportation often started privately in Boston, our subway system, at the beginning, and we were the first in the United States before New York. Our subway system was a private company, later taken over by the public sector. So that's one way. The second way is make your voices heard if you care about this. In Miami, they recently held a citizen-led event called Transit Day, Public Transit Day, in which they urged everybody to ride public transportation, including 40 elected officials. And because of that, they they raised awareness and support for a new plan in Miami to build buses and rail corridors in six important parts of the city that had been underserved. You're listening to Future City, and I'm talking with Dr. Rosabeth M. Cantor, who's a professor at Harvard Business School and author of MOVE, Putting America's Infrastructure Back into the Lead. Professor Cantor, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. These are important issues. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. We've been discussing the future of transportation and how America's broken transit system has been especially damaging to marginalized communities. Now, let's shift our focus to a city that is actively working toward transforming their transit system to include the most innovative new technology available. In 2016, Columbus, Ohio, competed against 77 other cities to win the Smart City Grant. $40 million from the U.S. Department of Transportation and $10 million from Vulcan Inc., a Paul G. Allen company. This money is going toward a variety of citywide projects, many of which are focused on transportation. To learn more, we're talking with Alex Fisher, President and CEO of the Columbus Partnership. The Columbus Partnership is a nonprofit, membership-based CEO organization of more than 60 CEOs from Columbus's leading businesses and institutions. Alex, thanks for talking with us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Wes. So, so let's start by talking about the Columbus Partnership. I'm, I'm fascinated by how involved the private sector has been in championing the citywide innovation that's taking place there. Can you tell me a bit about how that got started? Yeah, you know, so the partnership's uh, 17 or 18 years old. Uh, initially started with a couple of our key private sector uh, leaders, led by our chairman, uh, Les Wexner, uh, caring very passionately about the community. They started uh, really a little lunch club to uh, get five or six business leaders who didn't know each other uh, that well together uh, just to talk about the city and, and things that they could do to help. Um, about uh, 14 or 15 years ago, that gained some formality with a dozen CEOs and the initial uh, leader of the partnership. Uh, and now today, we've got uh, 60 uh, CEOs, uh, generally a billion dollars of revenue or more, that are headquartered here in Columbus that uh, lead their selfish interest at the door and roll up their sleeves and bring their community interest to our table and uh, really uh, dig in as uh, as aggressively as uh, any private sector group I've ever seen around the country. Do I do think, and we've been told very directly by both uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation and then Paul Allen's Vulcan uh, organization, who were the awarders of the grant, that uh, a big piece of it was um, the collaboration uh, that we have with our CEOs. In fact, 
Uh, Harvard teaches a business case study called the Columbus Way that uh, has chronicalized how our CEOs collaborate with the uh, public sector. And it's not something that's new to us. Uh, we've got a great uh, track record with a lot of projects. And we brought that collaboration to the Smart Cities uh, effort. Uh, very uh, aggressively put our best uh, ideas, uh, you know, forward, got down selected into a, a group of great American uh, cities, and uh, uh, we were thrilled to come out the winter. So now for this grant, though, it, it's not like it had to be earmarked for transportation, but you all made transportation a specific focus of how you wanted to use the uh, the grants. Why? Why was transportation so important? What we tried to do through Smart Cities is bring the whole suite of transportation and mobility options to the table with the citizen first, uh, but everything ranging from distribution to personal automobiles uh, that allow us to think across the horizon, look around the corners to see where the world is moving very quickly and uh, understand how Columbus uh, you know, can be a leader in those efforts. How close were you to the, how close were you to that reality of uh, that a child born today born today does not should not necessarily need a driver's license? How close were you to accomplishing that prior to the grant? And by the end of the grant, where do you think you all will be? You know, look, I, I think at the beginning of the grant, it's a it's a concept, and maybe even a concept that um, even as we would say it, I'm not sure that we totally believed it. Um, and as we are, are a, celebrated our one-year anniversary on the grant and really are just launching our Smart Cities uh, effort, um, uh, I think that we have a broad understanding that, in fact, the world is moving that quickly. You know, perhaps the greatest futurist uh, uh, in the history of mankind were the uh, authors and writers of the Jetsons because everything that they've written is literally coming up, coming true, whether we're FaceTiming our kids or we're driving and flying automobiles. So we, uh, we believe it. Uh, we now know through a lot of conversations with uh, automobile leaders that uh, most every uh, company is moving to an all-electric fleet. Um, it's based on performance. Uh, it's based on uh, energy consumption uh, and the like. We know that autonomy is coming at us very, very fast. And so that future is upon us. And uh, we think at the end of the grant, which is a four-year grant, that will still just be the beginning. And so, but as we're thinking about the future, that includes things like autonomous shuttles. And we're thinking about, you know, things like, uh, you know, taxis that don't have drivers. That will have implications uh, and, and consequences on employment and also uh, even on how we're thinking about these connectivity between communities, particularly communities that are, have been economically separate for a while. How are we thinking about the future and how it will impact the future of employment, the future of training, and also how it's going to impact uh, communities that even right now, as we speak, are already marginalized? Yeah, you know, really, really important. And um, our partner and really the leader of our Smart Cities effort was uh, Mayor Andy Ginther, uh, the mayor of the city of Columbus. And when he approached me in the private sector about joint venturing with the city of Columbus on this grant, uh, his premise, uh, which is still at the fundamental center of everything that we're doing, uh, was, um, you know, the Columbus citizen and uh, some of our most disadvantaged uh, citizens uh, we know that across America, and Columbus is no different, that the have-and-have-nots is continuing to widen and that the skills gaps uh, need to close, and we need to do everything we can to give everybody uh, the economic opportunities. 
we think we see mobility in a in a inner city neighborhood like uh, a neighborhood called Linden, uh, which is one of our uh, most challenged. Uh, that. Uh, transportation options can be a part of the solution to breaking down that economic uh, divide. But to do that, uh, you know, look, uh, if you're in a disadvantaged neighborhood and you're economically disadvantaged, you may not have a cell phone and you may not have, or you may not have an iPhone, you may not have a, a credit card. And oftentimes those are the two key ingredients to ride sharing. Uh, we want to break those down as a part of the uh, smart cities, uh, you know, grant uh, as we uh, as we move forward. So for us, it's about uh, uh, economic opportunity. Uh, it's about uh, you know not just simply uh, some expensive electric vehicle. Uh, it's about pragmatically, uh, you know, thinking about how these technologies can help our citizens. The reality is that uh, the largest uh, job classification in America is a driver. And uh, if, in fact, you believe in a world in which we have driverless cars and trucks, then there's a big portion of the society that, uh, you know, is going to have to shift. And we have to be talking about that. We can't put our head in, our, in the sand uh, and not think about it. And we don't have all the answers. Uh, but what we like about the smart cities um, activity is it's forcing us to uh, ask ourselves tough questions as it relates to, uh, employment and economic opportunity, and to then uh, you know work for solutions to those questions. You're listening to Future City, and we've been talking with Alex Fisher, the president and CEO of the Columbus Partnership. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show, and thank you so much for your work out there in Columbus and beyond. Absolutely. Uh, enjoy being with you, and thanks for the programming. You're tuned to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, a new bus system, the Link, debuted in Baltimore last month. But is it really helping those who need it most? That debate next. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and today on Future City, we've been talking about the future of urban transportation. We've learned about how vital public transportation can be when it comes to combating poverty and unemployment, and how one city, Columbus, Ohio, is utilizing the private sector to transform their transit system. Now, we'll turn to Baltimore, a city often critiqued for being far too reliant on cars to get around. First, we'll talk with Jimmy Rouse, the board president of the Baltimore Transit Campaign and a founding member of the related grassroots coalition, Transit Choices. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, so I, I first want to start, you, you just handed me a great packet, so I just want to start with it with a couple stats. The number one obstacle to escaping poverty is poor public transportation. And for 12 years running, according to college students, the number one thing lacking in the city of Baltimore is good public transportation. But this hasn't always been your background. Now, you first started off as owning you know, the, the famous Louis over on Charles Bookstore. Right. So how did you make the transition from that to now focusing on transportation? So my experience at Louis is what got me sensitized to the issue of how poor transit was in Baltimore. I had 95 employees 
and many of them came from east and west Baltimore. Being a restaurant, we had to have a strict rule, 15 minutes late, three times, and you're out of a job because we needed everybody there and everybody was important in getting open. I ended up having to fire people that were good employees that wanted to work simply because they could not get to work, get their kids to school and get to work in a reliable fashion. The bus would come some days, it wouldn't come others. It was heartbreaking to me to see people who wanted to work and that I wanted to work there couldn't keep a job because of the poor public transit. So that sensitized me to the need in the city which exists. And that was, I ran that restaurant from 1981 to 1998. That was 20 years ago and nothing has changed. You know, you you illustrate the fact that for many families who are in poverty trying to work their way out and for many families who are on the cusp, we're talking about missing a bus. Right. That increases your chances of either falling into poverty and or staying in poverty. Right. And and if you look at the neighborhoods in East and West Baltimore, at least 30% of the people living there have no access to cars at all. Some neighborhoods, it's as high as 80%. When, when I first started working on this, I discovered that the bus system had such a high absentee rate that on any given day, 10 to 20% of the drivers called in sick. And as a result, the bus, they pulled buses off the system. They didn't have enough substitutes, so they would just pull buses. So you could be standing there waiting for your bus and it would never come. And then perhaps the next one that would come would be so overcrowded it would pass you by. So how can you get to a job? You know, you can't get to a job that way. Not to mention the distances, the length of time people are spending even today, traveling to a job. And if you have two jobs in order to make ends eat, I mean, you're talking a minimum of four hours a day waiting for transit. That's four hours you're not spending with your family. You know, it it snowballs. And then, (laughs) you know, you can end up losing your job altogether. And then where are you? And so the the Baltimore Transit campaign, it actually started off as the Baltimore streetcar. That's true. Campaign. How did that evolution take place? So when I had Louis, the the other lesson I learned about transit was Mayor Schaefer operated a rubber wheel trolley that came from the Inner Harbor up Mount Vernon. Louis was in the block just below the monument. And um, as soon as he did that, it was only 25 cents. I noticed the immediate uptick in business from two groups, tourists coming up to Mount Vernon who were at the harbor and downtown office workers coming up to eat lunch at Louis. And that ran for three or four years. Mayor Schmoke replaced Schaefer. He didn't see the need for that trolley. As soon as it was cut out, I saw those two business uh, clientele, group of clientele decline. So that impressed upon me the importance of transit to economic development, because if you have good transit, you know, you have a better chance of attracting customers from a wider spectrum in the city. So I've made the effort to bring everybody together, form one organization, bring in the heavy hitters. Peter Angelos had just moved on to Charles Street, and Aegon was in the block north of... um, 
Belvedere. They had that whole block. It was third largest insurance company in the world. And we bought them in. And we started advocating for a streetcar up Charles Street. And that was, we went with that for 10 years. And at that point, there was a split within the Charles Street Development Corporation. Should we stay quiet until the red line gets under construction? But I had, and, and many others, had the feeling that, no, we needed to go out and win public support for the idea of streetcars in the city. So that's where I began. As soon as I began going into the community talking about streetcars, I, I saw that the problems in Baltimore were much greater than just the need for a streetcar. And when we went to the state, they said Baltimore transit planning is like crabs in a barrel. Everybody struggles to get to the top of the barrel, which is state funding. And as soon as one gets above, the others pull it back down. So everyone everyone understands the need, but there's a whole lot of opinions as to how right. exactly to Everybody's get working in silos and against each other. Is that the background for transit choices then? Yes, that's absolutely. At that point, we said, we need a unified vision. We need everybody working together. We went out to all these different groups, all the uni- presidents of all the universities, all the heads of the cultural institutions, neighborhood groups, citywide groups, and just took the mission statement. Baltimore needs better transit. We're, we're in favor of better transit for Baltimore and got everybody to sign on to that mission. And that was the beginning for Transit Choices. Are we any closer now to a, to a unified idea as to what that looks like for a Baltimore resident? I, I, I think we're moving in that direction, but we're not there yet. And so, so what, what's your opinion on the, on the new link system? When Governor Hogan announced the new link system, I went on the podium. He asked us to come on the podium with him. And we went on the podium and said, we hadn't seen any of the details of the system yet. We said, you know, obviously we can't say we endorse it, but what we can say is we agree with your stated objectives, which is better connection of people to jobs, more efficient transit, more reliable transit, and connecting people to educational opportunities, healthcare, et cetera. We said, we support those objectives and we'll work with you to see that Baltimore Link achieves those objectives. And then we formed a group called our Baltimore Link Subcommittee, and it was open to the public. And there were regularly between 25 and 50 groups which sent representatives to those meetings. And over the course of the next 18 months, we submitted 16 pages of comments, questions, suggestions to the MTA about the different Baltimore Link plans as they were rolled out. There were Baltimore Link 1.0, 2.0, and then beyond that. So the MTA responded by giving us four one-and-a-half-hour PowerPoint presentations where they addressed every single comment and question we had. They were never defensive. I became very impressed with the team at the MTA working on Baltimore Link. They were young. They were dedicated. They wanted to create a better bus system, and they'd been given the green light by Governor Hogan. Is it going to be better? That, to me, is an open question. Former uh, bookstore owner, former restaurateur, and now transportation advocate, Jimmy Rouse, the board president of the Baltimore Transit Campaign. It has been a joy having you on the show. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. This is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. 
We've been discussing the future of urban transportation and how Baltimore is working towards providing more options when it comes to public transportation. But some people think that the governor's decision to cancel the red line signals a step backward for the city when it comes to accessible transit. To talk about that issue, we are joined by Samuel Jordan, president of the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. Mr. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Wes, thank you very much. So so the Transit Equity Coalition came out of Title VI complaint that was filed after Governor Hogan decided to cancel the red line. Yes. Uh, can we just first start by explaining the vision for the red line and why this suit came about after the red line? I'm canceled? really glad to get a chance to talk about it because, you know, we find that there's so many who have heard something about the red line. Right. But because there was such a presumption that it would be built, they didn't really need to dive deeply into the details. Yeah. So this gives me a chance, again, to let people know that the red line light rail project was and is, because we seek to complete it, a 14.2-mile, 19-station, east-west, reliable, rapid light rail route. And it was to be the basis, from our point of view, of building out an integrated multimodal transportation network for Central Maryland. The Red Line's benefits, and this is what's very important because, frankly, keep this in mind, Wes, the Red Line is the largest public infrastructural project in the history of the state of Maryland, not only the history of Baltimore. 10,000 jobs, dramatically reduced commute times, connectivity with this east-west orientation that would, one, connect the Baltimore current north-south rail lines. You know, the north, the uh, mark line, the light rail, the heavy rail are north-south lines. They don't connect. Baltimore has long needed and still needs an east-west anchor for its system. The red line would move passengers from Bayview in the east to Woodlawn in the west and would form an actual, what we call a rationalizing anchor. That is, not only would the north-south rail lines be connected, but bus lines would also be able to connect two station areas on the Red Line Light Rail Corridor, and from there to the choice destinations, particularly to job centers. Right now, as you know, fewer than one of three jobs in Baltimore can be reached in 90 minutes. Another way of saying, Two-thirds of the jobs in Baltimore cannot be reached under an hour and a half. That's criminal. But we want to keep in mind this point as we discuss this matter. Before the Baltimore link was installed, Route 23, 26, and 40 were my lifelines. If they couldn't get there, I couldn't get there. And that's what transit dependence means. How many, how many people would the red line have moved on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? On a daily basis, the red line would be moving about 50,000, 60,000 people. But remember, the Baltimore bus transit system right now moves about 250,000 people a day. What's important here is that not only would these jobs be available, and that's nothing, that's no small feat. Remember, $900 million were approved from the federal government, $1.235 billion from the State Transportation Trust Fund. These were monies dedicated to the red line. So when Larry Hogan was elected, he didn't have to raise a finger to raise this money. It was sitting on his desk when he walked into the office and decided that this is something he could do for his own constituents, his base. This is a historical part that must be understood and also leads to understanding why we call ourselves the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. Larry Hogan toured the uprising zone 
in Baltimore, April 2015. He canceled the red line in June of 2015. In fact, June 25th. It's burned in my memory. But he did so after touring the uprising zone, after seeing what anger, what pent-up frustration uh, under service as communities historically, he saw that. 10,000 jobs dramatically reduced commute times. We'll talk about the importance of the commute times and transportation, the connectivity, but also the transit-oriented development in those 19 stations on that 14.2-mile route. Transit-oriented development is development that is occasioned by the existence of permanent transit hubs. The mantra in the industry is development follows rail. Buses follow development. And we've added something to it. The money follows the political will. So let me let me touch let me touch a bit on that point. Certainly. Because I actually don't want I don't want the listener to get caught up in the macro that they forget about the micro. Absolutely. Most of our listeners, many of our listeners, if they're listening from work, if they're listening from their vehicle, there is a point here. They are taking their vehicle to work or they're listening from their vehicle right now. Talk to me about what it's like for a person who is transportation dependent right now in the city of Baltimore. Walk us through it. Okay. Getting their groceries, going to the doctor, going to the school. Walk us through this process. Very good. In fact, in this process, we've actually coined a term we want people to get used to. It's called transit detention. Okay? Transit detention. This 90-minute commute one way means that a person who's lucky enough to have a job to go to is spending at least three and a half hours a day captive by a dysfunctional transportation system. What it means is that I wait, for example, on East Fayette in East Baltimore uh, near Upper Patterson Park. The buses either have a long headway for me or they're bunched. Okay, and bunching, as you know, is two, three arrive about the same time, and it really does no good for anybody. And The headways aren't spread out now. The new link is supposed to deal with the headway problem. But frankly, there's been more headway issues than ever before. But this person who's the average person, they have to, one, wait for that ride, transfer once, maybe twice, to get to school, to get to uh, food. There's not only food deserts, but there's also food insecurity. Then there's housing and education. These are all impacted by the quality and accessibility of a functioning transit system. So we've been trying to get MTA, the Transit Administration, to acknowledge the role that transportation plays in reducing these serious social problems. You know, transportation is at the nexus of these issues. Until that's recognized, then we're underdeveloping, we're committing 68% of Baltimore's population to be underdeveloped. There's also what you can only call an empathy deficit in Baltimore. People who are not transit dependent don't empathize with households that are. And I can give you a scenario. Suppose you're a breadwinner. Let's say you're in a household and maybe uh, two or three, four people, but you have one breadwinner. One person is lucky enough to have a job. Well, the rule of thumb among employers in the Baltimore region, particularly for the low and middle skilled jobs, three times 15 minutes late and you're out of a job. No questions asked, no discussion. We don't want to hear what the dog did. You're late. 
by because there's somebody waiting to take that job, low-skilled. So bad transportation keeps wages low because it churns low-wage employees who never get a chance to get above a year in service because that employer knows that if that employee is dependent upon Baltimore transportation, they're not going to make the three times 15 minutes late criterion anyway. They'll be gone in eight, eight months to nine months. That's standard. That person's out of a job. So the Baltimorean who is lucky enough to work from time to time is going through this cycle three times late because I depended on transportation. Now I'm out of a job. Think of yourself in this situation. You, Wes, are the breadwinner, and you've been late 15 minutes twice already. And one morning, you say, my goodness, I've overslept. That household becomes a scene for panic. Everybody is doing everything now they can to find how can we get Wes on that job floor at 701, not later than 701, okay? You're late at 701. 15 minutes late, you're gone. You're only waiting to hear how much money you can take home in your last paycheck, okay? Think of that. The average person who's not transit-dependent cannot relate to that because their jobs don't depend on 15 minutes late or not, and they don't experience that panic. And that's the point. I mean, I think we have to be honest that the, the way we have gotten here is structural and intentional inequity, and the only way you get out of it is by a very intentional unpackaging of that process. Uh, this is Mr. Samuel Jordan, who is the president of the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. Mr. Jordan, thank you for your honesty. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. You're tuned to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. When it comes to urban transportation, the greatest innovation may be a very old one, the bicycle. Not as flashy as a driverless car, but maybe safer and definitely cheaper. Biking in Baltimore, that's next. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So today we've been focusing on how public transportation can ensure our cities are accessible and equitable. A working transit system can be the deciding factor in lifting an individual out of poverty. So, what's the best method for getting from point A to point B? While news headlines tend to focus on new technology, driverless cars, automated buses, biking is still one of the best ways to get around in an urban environment. To tell us more about biking in Baltimore, we're going to speak with Liz Cornish, executive director of the advocacy group Bike More. And I have to tell you, when she came to the studio, she had her bike helmet with her. So this is this is this is real life. This is no hustle. So it's great to have you here, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so you're you're relatively new to Baltimore. I was working on the national level at the League of American Bicyclists and had the opportunity to travel the country and meet advocates that were doing work on the ground. And it was clear to me that the the best quality work that was dealing with the intersectional issues that I care deeply about were happening on the ground in local communities and the change in the policy work was happening through local government and I wanted to be a part of that. So so unpackage that for me, that mobility increases opportunity and access and opportunity. Unpackage that for me. When you think about quality of life, when you think about health, you have to think about access. And so when you think about how Baltimore City is currently laid out, 
There are some neighborhoods, like mine in Charles Village, just a few blocks north of the studio here, where I don't need to own a car to get around. I'm well-serviced by bus lines on Charles and St. Paul Street. I even have one on my own street on Maryland Avenue. I have a protected bike lane right outside my front door. I have the things that I need, my doctor, uh, groceries, healthy foods, uh, my friends, nightlife. They're all within walking distance of where I live. And then most importantly for my mental health, it connects me to my community. So as I'm walking my dog or riding my bike through my neighborhood that's relatively safe, I have built relationships with neighbors that have really, truly enriched my life. I know more neighbors living in Baltimore City in the two short years that I've lived here than any other city I've ever lived in America. And I think that's because I picked a neighborhood that's designed for biking and walking. Not everybody in Baltimore has that. And some of that is a legacy of structural racism. Some of that is the lack of political will to be able to apply the the things that we know um, create safe and healthy neighborhoods for all people. That's what I mean by when mobility gives you access to opportunity. You've got to be able to get to work. You've got to be able to get to school. Um, you've got to be able to get to health care and healthy foods to have a good quality of life. And, and that's just, frankly, really, really challenging for, for lots of Baltimore City residents. Yeah, and we should also uh, talk about and, and acknowledge some of the recent controversy around some of the bike lanes as well. So um, so can you talk a bit about the Potomac Street bike lane? So this was an interesting advocacy position that we needed to take. Potomac Street was identified in community planning documents dating back to about five years ago. That's when the Department of Planning or the Department of Transportation goes into a community. They host a variety of charrettes and they say, what would you like to see? And Potomac Street was identified I believe because of its width, it was a two-lane southbound street. And because it connected a couple of key assets in the neighborhood, Patterson Park, the Canton Square, and the Canton Waterfront Park, as having potential to have a protected bike facility. Protected bike facilities are important because they signify a safe space to invite people that otherwise might not feel comfortable biking in cities to try biking again. So as kids, we bike maybe in the park, um, you know, maybe on a trail, and then usually around 13 or 14, it drops off. And for many of us, we never bike again. Uh, and then in cities, as we're starting to see bike ridership increase among all demographics, the cities that are having the most success in terms of keeping people safe and continuing to increase bicycle ridership are the ones that are investing in protective facilities. And so increasing the number of people riding bikes is the number one way to keep people safe. So Potomac Street provided an important neighborhood connector. What happened here was that there were certain neighborhood neighbors that were concerned about the design. They took those concerns to the city, and then the city, through a series of conversations, ultimately decided to remove the lane and restart the planning process. We thought that was the wrong decision. And so what we did is we filed a temporary restraining order to ensure that prior to the lane being removed, that there was a clear path forward to maintain a comfortable all ages safe bike facility on that street. We also were very adamant that we didn't want to put in jeopardy the federal transportation dollars that were secured for that project, which we felt we could potentially if the city just abandoned the project. Not unrelated, but maybe too big to cover in this topic. It's interesting to learn how many grants the city receives 
that just sit unused because of the lack of political will to implement. One of those is the West Baltimore Bike Boulevards. It's a series of bike boulevard treatments, speed humps, uh, wayfinding, things that calm traffic uh, that will be implemented in the Hollands Market area. Uh, It received a Maryland State Bikeways grant approximately four years ago. As the city went out to bid uh, for construction, so it's been fully engineered, they were receiving bids that were too high, meaning that the city would have to kick in, in our estimation, around $125,000 additional dollars in order to be able to construct the facility. The city's been unwilling to find that money. But suddenly, as neighbors in Canton were concerned about all of these different things on the bike lane, there was suddenly extra money from the general fund to functionally remove something that they had already spent about $125,000 constructing. So for us, it was important because there were lots of people in the neighborhood that wanted to see this bike lane built, and we wanted to champion their voice. But most importantly, it's a terrible way to make transportation decisions in the city, to consistently kowtow every time a resident complains that we're making progress. And we need leadership in the city that is firm in their vision for the future of transportation in Baltimore and has an ability to lead people toward the best solution for everyone. And we don't think that's that was the case in Potomac Street, and that was ultimately the what resulted in the advocacy action that we took. And the most all-encompassing decisions that, that move forward. How, how uh, and when we think about inclusivity, how inclusive is the, Bald- is the biking community in Baltimore? The biking community in Baltimore is really diverse. Bike advocacy writ large doesn't look very diverse. Okay. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Traditional planning is problematic. There's not a lot of architects of color. There's not a lot of urban planners of color. And there's a lot of historical reasons for that. I think we're really lucky to have institutions like Morgan State University that are at the forefront of, of looking at these intersectional issues and how to get people of diverse backgrounds into these professional fields that ultimately have a lot of influence over the decisions that get made. But I think as a country, we have a long way to go. The other thing is about how we decide things. So go to a community meeting. Who's there? When is the community meeting held? How do you get there? If you're having a community meeting about transportation, is the only way to get there by car? Is that fair? And is there childcare provided? Is there food available? All of these things are things that people have to consider when they consider community involvement. And that's it. The, the, the way you're going to increase advocacy is explaining to the entire community why they should care. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing that helps to explain to people why they should care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're listening to Future City, and I've been talking with Liz Cornish, who is the executive director of Bike More. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. As we come to a close, I'd like to just leave us with a few thoughts. To be clear, we aren't here by accident. The current state of public transit and the poor and inequitable transportation infrastructure in this town has been the result of bad policy. Policies and priorities that have entrenched racial and socioeconomic divides. There are multiple reasons why we have communities that suffer from chronic, concentrated and generational poverty, but the number one obstacle to escaping poverty is poor public transportation. There are exciting new ways people are moving around. 
from tech-enhanced sharing economic transportation opportunities to autonomous vehicles to automated buses to battery and solar-powered bikes, water taxis, amongst many others. But no matter what the chosen mode of transportation is, we must focus on the needs of those whose lifeline to jobs, healthcare, educational assets, healthy food, and recreation depend on their mobility being a priority. But the truth is Baltimore must grow. Any city that is not growing is dying. The lack of a real transit system hampers our city's ability to attract and retain families and businesses. Cities that have quality transportation systems, not only do they have the potential to be more economically inclusive, but they also are more socially connected. If I get up in the morning and I hop in my car and I drive to work and after work I hop back in my car and I drive home, I am never forced to interact with anyone who is different from me if I don't choose to. But if you have a real public transportation system where you're then every day interacting with people who come from a different part of town, who come from a different family lineage, who come from a different culture, who might speak a different language. Now, I'm forced to understand my neighbors in a way that I might not have ever been forced to before. So public transportation is not just important to our economics, but it's important to our humanity. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette and mixed by Aaron Henkin. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people or organizations that we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Future City is also made possible by Janine and Josh Fidler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.